Take your Bibles and turn this morning to the Gospel of Matthew and chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 in our Bibles this morning. And we have come to uh, the place of uh, considering together the Lord's most well-known sermon. And if you're getting there to Matthew chapter 5 on account of the setting, verse number 1, this sermon uh, is said to be Jesus going up into a mountain, and the sermon has come to be known as the Sermon on the what? As the Sermon on the Mount. And not only is this the the, the Lord's most well-known sermon, but this sermon contains some of the most well-known statements um, in all of the Scripture, even if people don't know exactly where the statements come from. For instance, uh, very often you've uh, heard people repeat phrases like, Um, judge not that you be not what that you be not judged or even something like by their fruits you shall know them or um, you are the light of the world or let not your left hand know what your right hand doeth and those kind of expressions all come from this sermon In fact, uh, the most uh, well-known prayer often recited as the Lord's Prayer comes from this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, all of these expressions, again, are are well-known even if people don't know where they're from. And several of the Beatitudes that begin the sermon are also well-known. You're here in chapter 5, so you can just look at verse number 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Or... Verse number 9 is often quoted, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. And and I'm just giving you a sampling of well-known expressions in the sermon. What is interesting is even though uh, these expressions are well-known, there is a great divergence when it comes to the interpretation of the sermon as a whole. Some tend... Uh, to view this sermon almost entirely through the lens of political activism. Um, They see it as kind of a prescription or an antidote for social ills. Uh, Some suggest that if we followed this sermon, it would, you know, do away with oppression and war and poverty. Um, if If I gave you some of the names that I recall from the last run-up to the last presidential election that, that, um, that I think we would all regard as liberal politicians. I, I remember in several settings, debates and speeches and so on, where when they were trying to give kind of Christian arguments for their liberal positions, they actually cited phrases right out of the Sermon on the Mount. I'm not sure if they even knew where they came from, but they were citing them out of here. And you can go to the other end of the interpretation spectrum. So some are wanting to see it all about here and now politics. Um, And others will will take it all the way out to um, this is all about preparation for a future promised kingdom. The the promised uh, kingdom uh, that, that God has promised to give to his son Jesus the Messiah is postponed because the king was rejected. And and this sermon is really not for anybody today, not for unbelievers, not for Christians, but it it is only for those who will enter that future millennial kingdom. And so you really have something that runs all the way from 
uh, political activism out to it doesn't have any relevance really to people today and and there's a variety in between and we're going to address some of the principles of interpretation and how it impacts various passages along the way but I've raised all that this morning to try to get us to, to think through one of the clearly implied intentions of the Lord in this sermon. And if you take the sermon as a whole, I think I can show you that one of the purposes the Lord had, in fact, a major purpose that the Lord had, was actually evangelization. And, and what I mean by that label is that the Lord wanted sinners to come to see their need of salvation in Him alone. He wanted sinners that are headed for certain destruction of hell for all eternity to repent and be converted and become eternal citizens of heaven's kingdom. Now, I want to have you turn over to the end of chapter 7 to just see one evidence of that this morning. Chapter number 7, and, and we're turning over to the conclusion of the message. And, and sometimes you, you'll get an idea of where a preacher is headed from the beginning, and sometimes you get an idea of where he's been headed all along by the conclusion and, and, and how the applications wrap up. And that is the case here. Chapter 7, and come down to verses 21 through 23, and just see as the Lord is nearing the end of it, because it's chapters 5, 6, and 7. So right at the end, verse 21, Jesus says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works, and then will I profess unto them, I never knew you, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Now I'm going to stop our reading there, you could consider the closing illustration as well, all part of this theme. And I don't think you can see that the, the target audience that the Lord is actually evangelizing with this sermon is religious people. I mean, these are, these are people who would say, hey, Lord, you remember me? <clears throat> you remember what I did for you? Remember even my, my service for you? You get the idea from this sermon that, that a number of the people that were hearing the Lord preach thought that they were right with God on account of their, you know, identification with the people of God and on account of their kind of performing certain external practices that were expected of such people. I mean, the, th these were people that had a religious heritage. I mean, after all, we are the chosen people. Um, these were people that had performed religious activities, and they actually thought they were secure. I've had us go here to have us highlight that Jesus said, many are going to say to me, Lord, Lord, there's going to be many that actually think they are secure. That, that think, and in fact, as the sermon goes on, I think we'll see as we explore it, 
that there's many that were actually proud in their assurance that they are a people uniquely favored of God. And against that backdrop, Jesus' words were quite confrontational. Jesus was not establishing the platform of a political party and just giving out certain phrases. Jesus' preaching was confronting religious people who thought that they were okay with God. And they could tick off all the reasons why that would be the case. And he's just going after them again and again and again. And you can see that at the end of the message, as I've just illustrated. But when you go back, and if you will, go back to chapter 5 and the beginning of this message, you can see it from the very beginning as well. And back in chapter 5, verses 3 through 12 are commonly called the Beatitudes. And that is the case because, as you can see, verses 3 through 11 all start with the English word what? All right, blessed. And, and the Latin word for blessed is beatus, and from that expression developed the label beatitude. And the word as it's used here is referring to divine favor. So Jesus, right from the beginning of the message, pointed to the kind of people who really are uniquely favored by God. And again, these people are thinking, I'm uniquely favored because of my heritage. And I'm uniquely favored because of my religious activity. And Jesus says, no, the people that are uniquely favored are right at the beginning of verse number three. People that are poor in what? They are poor in spirit. Now, you want to note this term poor because there are two different words in the New Testament that are translated poor. And, and one of them has a reference. This is not the word. One of them has a reference to someone that has to work very hard just to make a basic living. Okay? They have a job, but they have very low income. That's how this word is represented. In, in Luke 21 and verse 2, it's used to actually refer to a poor widow. And you may remember this. Jesus is watching her up in the temple compound. And it says that this poor widow cast in two mites. We would say today two copper coins. All right? And she put them into the temple offering. She didn't have very much, but, but what little she had, she gave. Right? That, that's one of the terms translated poor. But the term that is translated here as poor is a word that is often accompanied by a verb that has the idea for crouching down. And what it's really communicating is the sense of being a beggar. It is actually used to describe, in Luke chapter 16... It's used to describe Lazarus, who is called a beggar. And remember the portrayal of him? He sat outside the rich man's gate, and he ate the what? He ate the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table, and the dogs came and did what? The dogs licked his open sores. Okay, now that... That description is what we're to think of when we come to Matthew chapter 5 here. 
and it describes people who are uniquely favored of God. But they're not uniquely favored because they're poor in money. They're not beggars in that sense. But they are beggars in, in what? Blessed are the poor in spirit. And here's what this is communicating. People that are uniquely favored of God are people who confess that their spiritual condition before God is one of utter destitution. People uniquely favored of God are people that confess that they have nothing good in themselves to commend them to God. They have no righteousness in the sight of God because they're sinners by nature, they're sinners by action. No matter how hard they work, they can't earn a righteous standing before God. And they really confess that, I'm going to use our terms now, they confess that their Christian upbringing doesn't gain them anything. Nor does being a nice person. Nor does attendance at a Bible-preaching church here and there. They're not going to be able to turn over a new leaf. They're not going to be able to work really hard from now till the day they die and hopefully squeak by with God. They are utterly destitute. They are beggars. They know it and they confess it. Those people are uniquely favored by God. And people uniquely favored by God don't just know and confess their destitute condition. They are also people, notice going into verse 4, that, that mourn. Blessed are they that, that mourn. And as we're kind of considering these two together, to, to uh, be poor in spirit is actually like you could think of somebody as being in a certain state or a certain condition. That is their condition. But to mourn is a word of action. It's an activity. The the word is a verb which is communicating action. In Mark chapter 16 and verse 10, weeping and mourning is what the disciples were doing following the death of Christ while his body was still in the tomb. And you've seen people mourn the loss of a dear loved one. Several years ago, our, our family was in a Walmart portrait studio uh, getting pictures for one of the children. And, and I walked away with the kids while my wife was uh, handling the details of ordering and, and paying for the picture. But while she was standing there, uh, the brother of the photographer walked up. And the brother is walking up, and as Karen said, before he even got right up there, This lady said, I don't want to hear it if it's bad news. And the man continued and said, Mom said I have to come and tell you. And then he proceeded to tell his sister that their dad was full of cancer and only had a few months to live. And at that, that lady burst into tears. Now that's the action of mourning. To mourn is to grieve over the knowledge, to grieve over the truth. And related to this, to, to mourn is to grieve over the knowledge of my destitute state before God. 
And if you want to ask, what does, a, what, what does somebody grieve over? Well, they, they, they show grief over the fact that they are consumed with sin. That they have broken God's law and offended God's person. And, and you can actually just even think of some themes over the rest of this sermon. Uh, later here in chapter 5, they, they grieve over the fact that, that they may not have murdered. And you can see in verse number 21, it says, You have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill. And, and, and maybe they have never murdered, but they have displayed in verse number 20 an anger that was not justified. I'm sorry, verse number 22, and towards the end of it, They've also uttered insulting words. Yeah, I've never shot anybody, but I know what it is for my heart to just be full of an unjustified anger and, and uttering of the most insulting words. They display grief that, verse number 27, they may not have ever committed outright adultery, but in verse 28, they certainly have entertained unlawful thoughts. They display grief, and I'm taking it right to the end of chapter 5, just again as some sampling, that they know nothing in verse 44 of what it is to really love their enemies after the manner it's mentioned here, because, I mean, what it says here about our enemies is that we speak to them courteously, we do real acts of kindness, and we pray for their best, and and, and resemble the love of a heavenly father who, who makes his son to shine on the evil and the good. And even when you go into chapter number six of this sermon, there's good activities like giving and, and praying and fasting. But in far too many cases, even when we've done those things, we've done them to be seen of who? To be seen of men. And, and by the time the... The, the chapter number six closes, there is the highlighting of the fact that, that what, in some cases, people have worked really hard for and they have saved up for and they've planned and they have budgeted for it is, is treasure that is treasure upon earth for the here and now, but they have really not laid up their treasure for the kingdom of heaven and the righteousness that is spoken of in verse number 33 as, as the whole highlight and the priority of life. What sinners really grieve over is that my life has just not been God-honoring, that I've been bound up with selfish pursuits and, and, and all about here. And the reality is because of all that, there is a death sentence on account of sin. I know that the wages of sin is death, and that's what I deserve because of breaking God's law and offending God's person. And, and my religious affiliation and my religious activities can't make up for it. And they really mourn over that, grieve over that. I'll never forget a January morning, a Monday morning, when um, I received a call from an oncologist in Wisconsin. And I was 20, and I had barely learned what an oncologist was, but I had been in and out of the hospital uh, with trying to find out what was going on in my lungs and and an oncologist called me and he said, I need to see you in Madison this afternoon. And I said, there must be a mistake because 
The last thing the doctor said when they dismissed me from the hospital on Friday was that I did not have cancer. They had said on Wednesday, you have cancer, and they came back on Friday and said, you don't have cancer, and we're going to let you go home. And he said, well, you need to come over, and we need to take some tests, and I need to talk to you. And, and um, I said, no, did you talk to the doctors at the hospital? Because they said, I don't have cancer. And he said, just come on over, and we'll talk about it. And and I can't now remember the order of everything. I do remember I had a, a bone marrow biopsy in both hips, and I had a spinal tap. And I remember that in the flow of all that, he told me I had a rare form of cancer. That's why they had a hard time diagnosing it. And he said the average lifespan is two to three years, and we need to start aggressive chemotherapy as soon as you recover from the lung surgery. And I remember when he walked out of that office, and my mom was the only one there with me that um, just the knowledge of, of, of what was in my immediate future, not to mention the long term, sunk in. I had a coat in my hands. I don't even know why, but I just remember throwing that coat towards the wall in, in an angry morning. I can't even remember all of what I said except, you know, my life is all messed up and there goes all my plans. And you probably have heard some news that was the truth and and it was factual and and you probably needed to hear it but but you reacted angrily towards the messenger that brought that news and the fact is there are people like that that they they react that way to a preacher or someone who cares about them that opens the bible and says listen this is no good you're headed for trouble Sometimes people say, I don't believe you, that can't be true. I mean, <clears throat> I know I'm not perfect, but come on, I'm not so bad that God would send me to hell. It's, I, I, I can't believe that. Or, or sometimes even when people know that what's being said about them is right, <laughs> their response will be, how dare you say that to me? Right? And there are people who really, who feel that way, about preaching in a church like this. And I mean, there's all kinds of marketing advice that will tell you not to preach the way we preach. Because people actually will say, look, I already know I'm not perfect. Why do I want to go and sit in public and have the preacher emphasize it over and over? You think that's going to make me feel any better about myself? But people who are uniquely favored of God. I keep going back to that because that's the word that he uses. People who, who are blessed by God, they actually mourn over their condition. What the characteristic that's mentioned in verse 5 in the third beatitude. Go back to Matthew 5 if you have turned away and look at verse number 5. Blessed are the meek. And that is a word that was actually used at other time, uh, in other settings in the first century to describe a, a wild animal that has actually been tamed. And the word literally means used to the hand. So this is why you may have heard meekness as strength under control. Well, think about, think about a colt, uh, a horse who... Uh, you know, we, we talk about engines, not in manpower, but in what? 
in horsepower. So you think about the strength of that animal. But James says that once they've actually been brought under control, they are turned about with a very small bed. Meekness is, is take this power, but this power is used to the hand. It responds, as it were, meekly to, to the leadership. When you start to talk about a man and his spirit, it's a spirit that just humbly accepts God's dealings without murmuring and without resistance and, and accepts them as right. I mean, this is a spirit that says that the law of God found in the word of God and, and the faithful preaching of the word that condemns my sin, that, that is right. And when he hears that message, it says <laughs> that I'm guilty as charged. I mean, I'm, I'm a sinner, and, and I can't change my nature, and I keep sinning in rebellion against God, and I know it's rebellion, and I'm sorry for my sin. And who will deliver me from this? I know I can't. And brethren, these three characteristics operating in conjunction with another the confessing, I'm poor in spirit. I mean, I am utterly destitute. And mourning over my sin and responding meekly to the word that exposes it, those things go completely against our nature. On our own, we are full of pride. The reality is, even if we are, if we are poor materially, I mean, I, I may admit, I'm certainly not rich, but we will gladly tell anybody that will listen about our positive traits. Okay. And it is true that there, there are plenty of people disappointed with their lives in some less than de desirable circumstances. But brethren, it, it, is a, it is not a common habit for people to mourn over their sinful condition. I mean, it, oh yeah, nobody's perfect. Oh, I'm, yeah, I'm not perfect, the next guy's not perfect. People will admit that, but it is not common for people to really mourn over their sinful condition. For people who have lived in, in relative ease and comfort and pleasure, and in some cases with material wealth, and, and they have resisted all their life admitting that the Bible, what the Bible says about them is true, sometimes it is the mercy of God to them to let them face hardships that they have to eventually confess are on account of their sin. And sometimes it is the mercy of God to even take some restraint off and let us really blow it. Have you ever blown it? I mean, you... You just responded so much in the flesh or you, you committed some kind of sin that it blows your mind to this day that you would even do it. And, and, and honestly, it's just so embarrassing and so humiliating. Sometimes God actually takes the restraint off and lets us just blow it so badly that we will finally admit, I really am that bad. I really am that needy. Because we resist that. And these qualities that are pointed to in, in the first three Beatitudes alone 
they actually go a long way to helping us understand an earlier statement about Jesus preaching. Just look back, since we're right here, look at chapter 4 and verse 17. And after John the Baptist was put in prison and Jesus preached, look at verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say what? Okay, let's make sure we're all there. I'm going to start again. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What would it have sounded like to hear Jesus preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand? I'm telling you, if you want to know what it sounded like to hear Jesus preach repentance, it's the first three Beatitudes as well as the rest of this. It's confess your condition of spiritual poverty. It's mourn over the sin that has brought on that poverty. It's accept the preaching and the conviction of the Spirit of God that exposes it. Accept it with meekness. That's what it sounded like to hear Jesus preach. Repent. And again, those that that heard that message in, in the original audience... Would, would click off the reasons they, they were right with God. But Jesus is like pulling back the, the covers of false professors. He's like stripping away the, the facade of people that were claiming they had a right relationship with God. And, and, and what he's saying is, look, people who are really in a favorable relationship with God are people who have had radically altered hearts towards sin and towards pleasing God. And brethren, I want to ask again this morning, because Jesus preached this to a religious audience, and I know you're in a Christian church, in a gospel-preaching church, but I want to say to even this audience on a Sunday morning, Do these qualities, even by the grace of God, do they describe the condition of your heart? Some of you that have been here for a while, you know, you've heard me say this before, that when you really look to assurance of your salvation, the place to go is not back to trying to remember an event and try to remember, you know, what I prayed and what I knew and what I meant. Have you ever struggled with that? Did I know enough? Did I pray the right words? Did I really mean it? And, and, and sometimes we go back and <clears throat> try to find. And, and some people, in some cases, they think they found something. Well, I, I did what other people say they did, and they are saved, so I must be. Or, or I go back and I can't remember, so I must not be. And, and the, the place to go <clears throat> is, is not go back. The place to go is... Do you have vital signs now? I mean, the Bible uses the expression, except a man be what? Except a man be born again. Well, what's the evidence that you were born? I mean, physically, what's the evidence you were born? Here you are, right? You're alive, and you've been alive for a while, and there's vital signs, and you've had them all these years. What's the evidence that you've been born again? And I'll tell you from this text, and obviously we could explore it more in other places, but some of the evidence that you've been born again 
is that even now your confession is that you would be entirely destitute before God apart from his saving grace. Even now you grieve over the sin that you still commit. It's Paul in a mature state that says, oh, wretched man that I am, who's going to deliver me? Even now there is meekness in response to the preaching of the word. Even now you don't get mad and walk out. Or you do, but when you walk out mad, the Spirit of God continues to go with you and humbles you and brings you back. And however faltering and failing you may be, these are the signs of life. They're signs of God at work. The first individual we baptized in our mission work in Nova Scotia had grown up in the home of a mother who was Roman Catholic. She had been influenced by her dad and a stepmom who were evangelicals. And, and through the evangelical side of the family, she had attended a Christian camp that preached the gospel and that, that preached that we're saved by God's grace through faith in the work of Christ. And, and she professed adherence to those facts when she was a teenager but when she was 20 she moved in with a man who was eight years her senior and we got to know her 23 or 24 somewhere right in there and she had been living with this man for all these years out of wedlock and she actually expressed some confusion that while she thought she was saved she knew that her life was certainly not honoring to the lord and as we had opportunity to start to talk to her, you know, we told her that on one hand, it's very possible for a Christian to commit the kind of sin that she had committed. But it is true, on the other hand, that saving faith includes repentance that acknowledges sin as rebellion against God and grieves over that and, and responds with meekness and just has a desire to be rescued from that sin. And as we concluded some of those discussions, she actually communicated to us that um, she thought she was saved and she was just struggling to do right. And, and we treated her um, according to her profession. And my wife um, started to have discipleship-type Bible studies with her. Another lady um, or two kind of took that on as well and, and did it uh, for months on a weekly basis with her. And... She started to come to church regularly. Um, she started to display real signs of spiritual life and, and, and hunger. And in light of all of the vital signs we thought we were seeing, um, we had reason to regard her profession of faith as a real thing, even though we didn't know what had happened in, all in the past. And in time, um, she communicated a desire to be baptized. And even an understanding that baptism was a public confession of her faith in Christ and and her desire to follow the Lord as a loyal disciple. Um, but so she just said, Pastor, what do I have to do to be baptized? And it's interesting. I just said, well, you'll need to give your testimony. And she kind of cut me off and she's like, testimony, what do you mean by that? So I was on, I was talking to her on the phone and I said, well, you just need to tell uh, all of us about what God did to bring you to saving faith. And she said, oh, you mean? And she just kind of spontaneously launched into recounting some of the background that I just gave you. And then for the first time, I heard her say, 
that on one particular day when we had had some Bible study with her, I was actually part of that discussion. My wife had taken her back to her house and dropped her off, and we didn't know this, but she said on that day that Mrs. Fuller dropped me off, she said, I didn't even go into my house right away, but I went on a long walk. And as I was rehearsing various things that you had gone over, she said, I came to realize that I had never really had conviction over being a sinner. I knew I had done some stuff wrong, but I wasn't convicted that I was a sinner. And I had never known before that day a real longing to be free from my sin. My circumstances, but not my sin. And she said, I just cried out to the Lord to deliver me from my sin. I had never heard that. But when I heard that, I was like, no wonder she started to display the signs of life that had not been apparent in her past. And again, I want to say that a Christian can and does sin and sometimes can do it in a grievous manner. But a Christian does have a heart towards both sin and Christ that is radically different than someone that has just professed adherence to a creed and has just and really is trusting in the prayer. And dear friend, if you're here this morning with a heart that confesses your destitute condition and you're here this morning with a heart that knows what it is to really grieve over your sinfulness and you're here this morning and you you don't react and resist and get mad with preaching that exposes it but you thank god that he convicts you and shows you and humbles you. If you're here this morning with that kind of heart, I want to tell you, you are uniquely favored by God. Because many people never really know that. If you're here this morning like that, that's the mercy of God to you. And if you're here this morning and you say, Pastor, I don't know that, and I've never known that, and I'm burned about it, I want to tell you that this message today is the mercy of God to you. This isn't for God to make you miserable, but this is for God in his grace to make you see your need so that you seek the deliverance that is found in him alone. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? And I just want to give you opportunity alone before the Lord to really just explore are there vital signs can you see the grace of god displayed in these qualities of a saving repentance in your life the reality is if you can't you know that was god you know you couldn't even make yourself broken about your sin but god made you broken about your sin and you want to thank him this morning for that grace and the sensitivity that you have that is sometimes painful today. Don't ask God to take that away. Ask him to just continue that sensitivity and, and, to, and to make the finished work of Christ even more precious in your eyes day by day.
And if you're here this morning and you need to really cry out for God to save you from your sin, maybe you even need to say, God, in your grace and mercy, help me to know my sinfulness and to really feel it. And give me that which causes me to mourn about it. Some of you, some of you young people that are here, I, I don't say this unkind to you at all. I know what it is to raise my own children in this kind of environment. And you know what it is to be sorry for consequences, to be sorry about even kind of social dynamics, to even just feel guilty, like a bad girl, a bad boy. But you don't know what it is for God to really break you over your sinfulness through and through and make you long to be delivered from it. Cry out to him for his mercy and his grace.